Hello everybody and welcome to the PGR cast by the Bristol Doctoral College. My name's Sebastian and today I'll be talking to Dr. Natalie Lancer. Natalie is a chartered coaching psychologist, coach, coach supervisor, academic writer and speaker. She is chair of the British Psychological Society Division of Coaching Psychology and the host of their new podcast. She has published a number of peer-reviewed papers, including articles on the Eight Tensions Framework, the core of her signature smart self-care and personal growth program. She coaches PhD students on motivation, staying focused and finding their voice. Natalie did her PhD part-time whilst caring for her two young daughters and working as a coach. She fully understands the need for work, study, life balance and shares practical strategies on how to juggle research and family commitments. So in this episode, we'll be talking about Natalie's work with PhD students and researchers, the benefits of coaching, and Natalie will also give us some insights into her unique approach to self-care. So welcome, Natalie. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And to start off, I just wanted to ask how you came to coaching. Well, I started life as a teacher. So after university and after a random full start as an investment banker, I then went into teaching. and. Because I went to Oxford University for my undergraduate, I was always the teacher responsible for the Oxbridge mentoring. And some random fact about me, I also went to medical school for um, a brief period of time. So I was also always in charge of the medics. And so this morphed into generally being the person to go to for any university advice. And eventually I started my own educational consultancy outside of schools where I did just that and in fact I still have an interest in doing that and then parents started coming to me and they said do you do this for parents and I said no I don't talk to adults and they were like oh um well I think you know it would be quite helpful to talk to you so then I went and upskilled and I did a coaching course about 13 years ago when coaching was not as huge as it is now I felt almost like a pioneer not quite but almost and I did a qualification in coaching and at that point I felt much more equipped to really it's not giving advice as a coach it's it's asking the right questions and providing challenge so the other person gets stimulated to to find answers for themselves which is a much more adult to adult way obviously of communicating rather than teach a pupil which is obviously more didactic so I felt more comfortable having upskilled and then around the same time I thought I was going to do a PhD about autism and for whatever reason I didn't do that in the end and I was thinking oh what am I going to do a PhD on and then I just thought you know what coaching seems to be a thing maybe I should do it around coaching psychology and it was a good choice it was a stab in the dark And it was a good choice because my study was one of the first studies, maybe something like the 10th study in coaching psychology of undergraduates. And it felt like a very pioneering place to be and very exploratory. And then it took me so long to do my PhD because I gave birth in the middle of it and also had a little daughter. So it took me seven years. So by the time I came to the end of it, coaching had sort of caught up with itself and become more of a thing. But on the other hand, I had gained some, you know, quite detailed knowledge from my own studies. That meant I was in a position where I could give advice to future coaches, not only training them, but also speak quite authoritatively about what happens when you coach students, because that's what the topic of my PhD was about. And it's all boomed since then. Now, almost every university has internal coaches for students. It's all taken off and it feels a bit like I got in there at the right time and it just happens to be that it all all fell into place. So when at the time when you were doing your PhD you didn't have the opportunity to have a, a coach yourself then? Oh good question. I've got a very close friend of mine who I met when I did my psychology conversion course with the Open University. Big shout out to the Open University because it was a very great experience and she was effectively my coach And, you know, looking back on it, I can say, yeah, she was my coach because she did ask me those challenging questions and she was my sounding board. And I think a lot of people do have relationships with others that are very coach-like, even if they don't know it is. And, you know, you have to be quite comfortable with somebody giving you some quite hard-hitting feedback 
because of course a friend and she is a friend as well of course but you know somebody who is always on your side and who is you know always trying to make a situation good when when actually maybe you have written something bad or you know maybe you are at fault in some way you know it's hard to get that relationship with a normal friendship so nine times out of ten I think it's very hard for a coach to coach you but we had a maybe because we met later on in life and we had a mutual interest in coaching psychology that I did basically have that and then when I did my coach training you got supervised so I also was familiar with having someone to to speak to professionally about things in that way and then I did actually end up having my own coach and I think all coaches probably have coaches because we we buy into the fact that it is a useful relationship it's a useful thinking alliance to have with someone who is not someone who has power over you your supervisor whether they like it or not has power over you if push comes to shove and I hope it doesn't obviously but if, if it did frankly they could put in a complaint they could recommend that you know, you shouldn't do a PhD. I mean, yeah, we, we all every time we all press send on a chapter that we send to our supervisor, I'm 100% sure we all think like, that's it, they found me out, they're going to chuck me out. But the reason we think that is because we know they do have that power. They're very rarely going to exercise that. But the other thing is just to say is that I've got a very supportive family. And I, I know how lucky I am to have that. Families don't get PhDs unless they happen to have done one, which in my case, I was the first person in my family to do a PhD, but they don't get it. So with all the love in the world, they cannot understand what it's like. And therefore, I mean, you know, I'm preempting the next question at one point, which is how did I get to be a coach for PhD students? And I realized that there was a, a real lack of support for PhD students, not in terms of, you know, the supervisors are great. There's counselling services, of course, at universities, although often with very long waiting lists. But the people who I see, they're not ill. You know, they don't need a counsellor necessarily. They may well in the past, but I'm saying at the point they're seeing me, this isn't about curing anyone. This is about sympathetically listening to somebody. I've been there, seen it, done it. I get it. I know it's horrendously hard. Doing the PhD was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And I've done lots of different things in my life. And I just thought to myself, is this the thing that's going to be the thing I can't do? Because it'd be amazing to me if that is the thing that I can't do. And frankly, I thought it was the thing I couldn't do. There was lots of crying. There was lots of, am I even equipped to do this? And I went through to the other side. But simultaneously, while doing a PhD in coaching psychology, by default, I basically did a PhD in self-help because I think I read every single book there was about how do you get through not only PhDs, but just very challenging things. And there was born my interest in that sort of help because there are practical things you can do, like really easy things. And it's like when I coach PhD students, often the feedback I get is there are just things Natalie knows that I just don't know that obviously I tell them just easy things that have a disproportionate impact on your day. And this whole thing is about day by day. Someone told me an anecdote the other day. I sort of collect anecdotes from what people tell me. And I think it's quite well known in the people who are recovering alcoholics that there's this principle of sort of day by day. So, you know, I'm going to be sober today or I'm going to be sober tomorrow. And you keep on saying it. And of course, that accrues to years and years of being sober. But you don't think about it as years and years. You think about it day by day. And I think that's how I help PhD students think about their work. Like there's no point thinking about the next three years or four years. It's just humans are not equipped to think three or four years in advance. It's just not a time period that makes any sense to our brain. But we can think 90 days probably. That's probably the maximum that makes sense to us and we can certainly think day by day so it's always for me what's the next thing you can do and the other piece of knowledge that I I mean apart from coaching psychology which obviously I read constantly and I love reading articles and I do review for a number of journals so I sort of feel like I always see a very fresh article as, as well as just just keeping up in general but the other field that I think is very relevant is sports psychology which was a completely new field to me it dawned on me about three years ago that doing a PhD is effectively doing a marathon, an intellectual marathon. And 
I thought, well, let's look at what sports psychologists do to coach marathon runners. And can I apply some of that to PhD students? And I went did a whole load of research and reading about that. Um, and that's also what I do. So you might not know that's what I'm doing, but I'm actually implementing a lot of the techniques from sports psychology as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that brings us to an interesting point when sort of discussions about mental health, for example, are happening a lot more for, for PhD students at the moment. And in fact, some of the past episodes of this podcast have dealt with research in times of adversity, and it was very much coming out of COVID-19 pandemic and those types of challenges that some of the researchers were facing. You've mentioned this idea about you've read self-care books, and, and I see that that come to be part of your approach. I mean, can you talk a little bit about exactly what you call it smart self-care? Can you just describe what that is, please? Yeah, well, self-care is one of those concepts that you read about it everywhere, you see it everywhere, and it means everything and nothing, but literally everything, everything from having a bath, having a walk, eating nice food, going to bed, I mean, everything. And it actually also means literally nothing. Like, what does that really mean for your mental health? Now, having said all of that, you know, we, we know from Maslow, for example, if you remember his hierarchy of needs, yeah, of course you need to eat well. Of course you need sleep. Of course you need exercise. That's just the important building blocks of life. And then the other stuff that you do, you know, on top of that is this intellectual work. So, of course, you need to embed the basics. But the problem with the rhetoric around self-care is that apart from the fact it means pretty much anything, so therefore means pretty much nothing, it also reactionary. So you're stressed, so go and light a candle and have a bath. That's no good. We need to get to why you're stressed in the first place. We need to stop the stress happening in the beginning and, and also recognise that not all stress is bad anyway. There's a great TED talk, and you'll look it up afterwards, he did it because I can't remember, about good stress. And that there's an amazing finding that stress is only bad for you if you think it's bad for you. So stress is good for you if you think it's good for you. So much of this is about how you perceive these things happening to you. So the bottom line is, is that if we can take a preemptive approach to your working day as a, and your life as a human being, not just a doctoral student, but in general, then you can work out what your processes are for engaging in doctoral work in advance and sort of plan these out and try them out as an experiment and say, okay, that doesn't work, that's fine, I'm going to try this other way, in a sort of more rational way, then we have a much healthier relationship to our work and see the bigger picture a bit more. That's definitely one of the key points of what I help people do. The PhD is but one facet of your life. I know you've got children and people have got jobs. You know, there's other things going on in life, and the PhD is by no means the be all and end all. Your supervisor may well make you think it's the be all and end all, but there's a certain thing here about managing your supervisor. I call it managing up your supervisor. And there's so much going on. But if you can have a game plan for all of this in advance rather than oh, I had a really bad meeting with my supervisor, you know, all is lost, I'm a bad person. But if you went in there sort of, right, this is just one thing I'm doing in my day, this is the information I need to get from my supervisor in order to move on, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, then automatically you're going to be less stressed and less worried about it. So a very long answer to your question. So the smart part of this is taking this preemptive view in a sort of rational view and thinking these big questions in advance about how do I want to approach the PhD and life in general? Yes, yeah, so actually, there's someone that's done your smart self-care course. And in this case, you were working with the South Western Wales Doctoral Training Partnership and working with PhD students in that consortium. So uh, a shout out to the SWWDTP as well for us having met through having done one of your courses. I wonder with this this approach that you take, it's it's kind of specifically tailored towards PhD students. So what makes the particularities or the, the specific things about a PhD journey, um, how is that different from, say, other forms of coaching for more like what might be called life coachings? I think there's many different facets to a PhD. One is this marathon nature. It's just so long. It's a huge undertaking. So I think that I, I, I can barely think of any other project 
in a work life, apart from designing like infrastructure for a whole country, you know, I imagine that's 20 years or something. But anyway, you know, it's a huge piece of work. So that, that makes it unique. I think that there's a uniqueness about the relationship the student has with their supervisors because actually they're pretty much only interacting in depth with about two people in, in that level. So there's, there's this isolation that just doesn't happen in many other walks of life. And of course, my answer, to, because what, what one of the things we haven't mentioned yet is that I'm an existential psychologist, which means that I very much believe that we make our own choices and that we don't have to accept the status quo. So, okay, you talk to two people mainly, go and find some more people to talk to. Literally make connections with other people, either who are interested in your subjects at other universities, or of course, even if they're not interested in your subjects at your own university, or just general friends. You know, you'll be surprised what people are interested in, even if they're not academics themselves. So I think I might have forgotten your question. <laughs> Sorry, I've gone off on a rabbit hole there. Tell me your question again. Um, so it's just about the specific kind of what makes having to work with PhD researchers different than maybe working with others. Oh, yes. So I think the currency of academics and, and PhD students, we trade in ideas. That is our bread and butter. And I love that. You know, there's very few professions where you could really say that that, that is what we're doing. And I think that people get very worried about their ideas. You know, are these ideas good enough? Have I read enough other people of other people's ideas? Are they going to be accepted? Does this count? Is this even the subject I'm meant to be doing? Am I straying into another subject? And I think that intellectually working with ideas is quite unusual in, in this, like working with intellectual ideas. So I think that's different as well. You know, we aren't talking office politics here we aren't talking about promotions which is often what coaching might be about in an organization we're talking about how do you manage these quite esoteric ideas and then the very practical part so we've got got that very sort of intangible stuff that I just mentioned but then the very practical part of how do you translate those ephemeral pieces into writing that's very much like you need to put your fingers on a keyboard and get words out and and make it make sense to another human being and that's a very very practical piece and I think that's quite an unusual combination because you need to have confidence in what you're writing in like that's even worth writing and then you've got to have a mechanism to get it written now you know you might say isn't the mechanism just hands on keyboard I mean I wish it was but what if you're not feeling so inspired that day or what if you're not quite sure how to explain it or if it fits or how it's going to be received there's a whole psychological piece there before you even put your fingers on the keyboard so I think it's quite unusual for all of those reasons and and I think the other thing is that because some people might say I'm going to treat it like a job and I'm going to do nine till five but but actually it doesn't really work like that because we all know when you know you've got a deadline you're you know often up very late and as I said you know you might have other commitments and it was COVID you had all the time in the world and no one felt like doing anything because everyone's so depressed and you know we've got all these other things so the other question is how do you do a PhD within your current life because it isn't a standalone thing it's absolutely connected you know if your kid was up all night and couldn't sleep your day's work the next day is scuppered and this is very cognitively demanding work I hope I bring a bit of just a humane and a humanness to all this and just to say it's okay like if your kid was up all night no one expects you to write 5,000 words the next day that's fine but yeah, actually, that's something that kind of resonates with me quite a lot as a, a father of a small toddler as well, that, you know, <laughs> these other parts of life do often come to, you know, bear down and, and to, to have their effect on, you know, and we feel like we can be productive all the time. But we can maybe go back to this question of productivity in a, a little bit later. But I just wanted to get a bit more of a sense of you mentioned this trading in ideas and also your the influences of existential philosophy on your work. And I know that from having done one of your courses that that feeds into what you call this eight tensions framework. Can you just talk a little bit about 
that relationship between maybe theory and then the, the practice of actually implementing these yeah. things in through your course? So, so existential philosophy and existential psychology is a is a practical thing. It, it, it isn't about or shouldn't be about theory. It's about how do we live life deliberately through making choices rather than sort of being a the passenger and letting things be done to you. And that sort of sums up what existential psychology is all about. And uh, it's very much how I live my life. I, I didn't even know existential psychology existed until about 10 years ago. In fact, I started, you know, when, you know, we're all trying to find some framework or theory to hook our PhD on. And, and I sort of was very aware that, you know, I had, I had, a, had a few floating around. And I went to a conference. I went to loads. In fact, one year I went to seven conferences. And in six of those conferences, I felt like a lemon. I just thought I didn't fit in. I had no idea what anyone was talking about. They certainly didn't have any idea what I was talking about when I was doing my presentation. I was like, oh, I really don't fit in here. and I don't get it. And then I went to something called the IMEC conference, which is the International Meaning Conference, which is all about existential. It was all had this existential flavor. And I felt felt like I'd come home and everyone was talking about all the stuff that I've always been thinking about and I didn't have a name for it and then I realized that all this sort of thing that I really do think about agency and choice and you make your own luck in life you know don't don't wait for it to happen because it's not going to happen so you've got to like you've got to just do things yourself and I do have a very candy attitude which which is why I got so upset that I thought is the is the PhD the thing that I can't do because it's like really is that is that the thing you know I've done all these other things so epistemologically then you know I felt very much that the the things I always say fitted in very nicely there and then when I read the the greats in existential philosophy and we're talking Sartre and Heidegger and Nietzsche and we're talking Viktor Frankl and Wallo May and Irving Yalom and I'm giving you a book list now, and <laughs> Amy Van Dersen, who is around now and a prolific writer. I was reading this stuff and I couldn't devour it enough. And I was just thinking, well, you know, this is it. And it was so practical. And when I did my own study, my own doctoral study, I interviewed loads and loads of undergraduate students longitudinally over, over a couple of years and I'd been steeped in all this reading and as they were talking to me I realized what they were saying fitted into approximately eight headings of life and when I sort of got back to work and it took me a long time to sort of work this out but I realized that what they were talking about was how do they navigate these eight let's call them universal life tensions or challenges and that's where the Eight Tensions Framework was born. And I realised that all the writing, I'd, uh, all the reading that I had done, see, tensions isn't my idea. Tensions is something that Kierkegaard has spoken about and Emmy Van Dersen has spoken about. But to lay them out as like, here are eight that we all grapple with and here's like a nice picture of them and we all get what they are just from the... I made sure that I made sure that the titles of the tensions or the ends of the tensions were very relatable. You only need to look at them and you immediately get what we're talking about. That's the sort of value I think I brought into this. And then I began doing some you know, introspection and I just thought, hang on, aren't these all the things I'm experiencing now whilst doing the PhD? So I find this always happens. It happens to every student I ever speak to. But the thing they, they're writing about becomes the thing they're grappling with. I mean, it's amazing how this works out all the time. And so it was like, oh, the, the eight tensions that I found from this study are the eight tensions that, you know, over the course of time I've been grappling with, maybe not all at once, but certainly in total. And then I thought, well, what if these, instead of, again, going back to the preemptive self-care, this smart self-care, what if we look at these eight tensions, and I'm going to, this is almost verbatim from Emmy Van Dersen, you know, and, and another person I should mention, Bo Jacobson. What, what if we look at these squarely in the eye? So we're not going to hide away from these tensions. It's just a fact that sometimes we're narrowing down on, you know, ideas and 
writing and thinking and sometimes we're opening up well let, let's not just find ourselves there let's preemptively look at this and think where am I now and where do I want to be and if there's a difference between where you find yourself on the tension and where you want to be there's some very very practical things you can do which is what I teach in the course but on the course we work through all of these eight tensions in succession and ask ourselves this searching question and know that the answer is going to change. So the other thing that's very important in existential psychology is that we are a work in progress and we, we never stop. The only time we stop is when we're dead, right? So the, this idea of dynamism is ever present and that we need to check in with ourselves on how we're constructively facing these eight tensions regularly. And that might be every year, every month, every term you know you can you can choose it's not for me to tell you how often to to check in but I but it is for me to tell you to check in like that's the one thing you've got to do in life if you you've got to review where you are where, where you want to be and make a decision where you want to be and that is the existential method essentially and as an existential coach existential psychologist I am helping people make those decisions and giving them the tools to you know once they've made those decisions to basically execute those decisions and like go and do it and the confidence to do it as well absolutely i think that idea of <clears throat> sort of resonated with me quite a lot was this idea about that quite often it can be the thing that you've got right in front of you is the thing that you need to do but often it's it's kind of coming to that realization of how you you come to find that point of you know those light bulb moments maybe um in research and so specifically about these kind of working relationships that people have throughout their PhDs. I know in the past podcast, there's, there's been um, an interview with a, with a supervisor from the supervisor's perspective of supervising postgraduate students. And, you know, how is the relationship between the coach, say, and, and a supervisor different? Because those are kind of, yeah, um, I mean, the, the major relationship in, in the PhD journey is this supervisor and supervisee one. So how, how might the relationship differ? Yeah, it's a great question and something that I think about a lot because I am also a supervisor of, of PhDs and masters. So I have um, more than one role. And just, just to point out that I wouldn't be a coach for someone who I was supervising because, you know, obviously that, that wouldn't work. Having said that, and we can come on to this, I do think that supervisors could take a coaching approach, which I shall also explain what that means. But that's not quite the question you've asked me difference in relationship is I have no vested interest in the outcome of your PhD. I don't care if you write it tomorrow or in 10 years or it never gets done. In fact, honestly, sometimes the outcome of coaching with me is the answer is, or the, the student chooses, they don't want to do the PhD, which is not a great outcome if you're a supervisor. So I don't mind what you decide. I, I genuinely, you know, it doesn't, I'm not affected in, in any way. The supervisor may well be affected, both financially and sort of in standing in their own. When I say financially, I'm talking about research grants and things and in their own department. The other thing is, is that the supervisor really does have expertise in your field. And I don't. I mean, unless you happen to be doing a PhD on existential psychology, I really don't have any expertise. So there's nothing I can give you which is good because I'm not trying to give you anything. I'm trying to elicit from you stuff that you already know and also, and you might not realise you know or give you confidence to say by mirroring back to you what you said to me. And you're like, oh, that sounds good. I'm like, you literally just said that. I've just said it back to you. But there's some magic happens when someone says it back to you. And it's obvious that it didn't come from me because I don't know your topic. So it, I am only mirroring what you said as well. And there's also just something about, you know, like I know supervisors are, are, are very stressed. They're very time poor. They don't have probably, I'm guessing most of them don't have time to hear about all the ancillary things to your PhD, which really are quite fundamental. Like, you know, how's your child? I know you were ill. How's this collaboration or whatever? They... I mean, the other thing is, is I'm, I'm not going to read your work. I mean, sometimes people might show me a PowerPoint and just sort of ask for some very sort of high level comments about, you know, what's it look like and, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, I'm not going to get into the weeds. But what I am going to do is help think about, as I said, your, your processes and your approach and your, um, 
your sense of perspective, and there are plenty of supervisors who could do with that help as well, by the way. They're not always the best people to advise or to, to help guide about managing these things because they are often very, very stressed themselves. So I guess I'm an objective professional. I'm highly trained in how I have these, let's call them conversations with a purpose. They are very, these conversations are, are friendly, but they are also have got quite strict parameters. You know, we might be speaking for half an hour, for example, and I might ask you what you want to achieve at the end of it. And is there anything specific you're bringing to the discussion? So you're leading me, not I'm leading you. And I think often with supervisors, they may well be calling the shots, for example. And I think I think the supervisory relationship changes over time, by the way. So it might be at the beginning they're calling the shots and, and towards the end, I hope that the, the student is doing that. But nothing is off limits to, to talk to me about. So, you know, because everything can affect, affect writing, you know, it could be some relationship you're having is so difficult that it's taking up all your energy and your brain power and you can't write. Well, I'm going to help you with that relationship then because that's the way to get you to write. Whereas I can't see a supervisor sitting there and talking about, you know, something like that. And the other thing is, is I'm a big fan of rest. My answer to most people is go for a nap. (laughs) And because that is the answer to most problems, like most people are tired and all they need is to go to bed. And, you know, and I don't think that advice is given enough when, you know, the whole world looks different when you've had enough sleep and you've got energy. So, you know, if someone's too tired to do their work or they're not thinking straight, it often is they just need a break. So maybe I'm a bit more fearless than a supervisor and I'll say say things like that as well. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea is the, the kind of levels of investment, say, that a supervisor might have with their supervisee that might be different and almost sounds like you're sort of providing also this kind of safer space for people to maybe say the things that they might feel that they can't say maybe to their supervisors. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's that's another point, actually, which is because I am a supervisor as well, I always say to people, say anything silly to me or that, or I don't think it's silly, but, you know, things that you probably think are a bit silly to ask your supervisor because I'm just going to answer them and I don't find any of it silly. And there are people who say, I still don't get the difference between method and methodology. And it's like within one sentence, I can clear that up. But they're too it might have saved them six months of like angsting about it or, you know, not quite grasping it because it is quite simple, but that's a common one that, that, you know, people just don't want to make themselves look silly in front of their supervisors, which means that in that relationship, as you said, there is this sort of, it must feel unsafe in some way. And and we know why, because there's power differentials, but, you know, I'm quite happy, got many foibles myself. <laughs> I'm quite happy to be myself and really encouraging people to be them, themselves with me and, and feel comfortable. And the other thing I wanted to say is about supervisors taking a coaching approach is that as much as, you know, I'm not suggesting that all supervisors should be coaches, not at all, but I think that there are some fundamental things about coaching that have really helped me in, in other areas of my life, just having conversations with, with friends, family, whatever, in other areas. And one of them is to listen more um, and to say back what you've listened, you know, what you've heard. Because often what we think we've heard is not what the other person said. And that's where communication goes wrong and everything gets a bit messy. So what I've understood from this, is that right? And the answer might be no, you've misunderstood, which is fine. And then, you know, I hope to be told that. And the other thing is just about giving the other person, sort of letting them letting them have the space to say what it is that they, they think they should do next, for example. So what do you think you should work on next? Now, I think a lot of supervisors probably do do that. But I think it's really good to model that there is no set answer. I think this is another very existential principle. Like there, there's no like pre-made formula. Like there's no answer to how to do a PhD. The biggest thing I coach people on is people seem to think there's this ideal PhD student who's like walking around the clipboard somewhere, doing I'm, I'm you know doing nine till five 
writing all the time and that they they are falling short from this ideal PhD student. And the biggest thing that comes out is they realize it's a myth. There is no ideal PhD student. Like that you've never ever seen that person. And I think that supervisors might look like they've got it all together, they're always writing, they're always doing this. I think it would be so nice to see just sort of like the underside, as it were, of of the supervisor, just a softer side. It's like actually that's just the that's the bit you see, but really I struggle with this too. And I just think that would just make it safer, but also to say it's okay to struggle with things. Like it's not easy doing all this stuff. So I guess I'm saying a bit more self-disclosure from supervisors would be great. And I think, I mean, that, that idea of the myth of, you know, this ideal PhD student, I think uh, often PhD candidates can kind of construct these myths for themselves and that can be a powerful enough thing to kind of drive them into, I don't know, some form of misery or kind of existential crisis about where, where they're heading. And I think that's something that came up in the course is like thinking about the sort of the they or when we talk about, you know, who are those other people, the peers, or are we talking about our supervisors and the potential perceived disappointment that we might feel they're having? And or is it is it, you know, other academics? Is it the kind of academy, whatever that means? Well, this is another very common thing that comes up in coaching. People say, everyone's so disappointed in me. I'm like, really? Name one person who's disappointed in you. Just give me the name of the one. They can't because actually no one's disappointed in them. And there's this this everyone, as you said, the they, nice Heidegger reference, is 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 a non-existent person. It's it's a faceless nothing. And I think there's a lot of they in academia. And you know, I always try and point out, and this is this is this is such a common, you know. Sort of self-help thing that if a friend came to you and said I'm feeling really ill but I've got to like get this paper in tomorrow what should I do you would say to them well tell whoever it is you're giving the paper in that you're ill and you'll give it in next week but somehow we don't apply the same standards to ourselves so I think we are always scared of of disappointing the they and I had a big breakthrough myself because I thought my family were very disappointed in me that I was still doing the PhD I mean it felt like I was just doing it for an eternity. And eventually I just asked my parents, I just said, you're just really disappointed that like, I'm still doing it. And they said, no, they said, we're, we're, we're so proud of you that you're even doing it at all. Like, why would we be disappointed? Like, and we're so proud of you that you're persevering. And that's all I needed to hear to keep persevering. But I, I, I and this is one of the other things I say on the course, which is like, stop making up stuff. We do this whole hypothetical situation. We hypothesize, that's the word. All, all these different things. Maybe my supervisor hates me. Maybe I'm the slowest person ever at writing this. Like Maybe I've got a reading problem because it actually takes me five hours to read one thing. No, it's not. It's because you're reading it thoroughly. Like Anyone can skim read it, but they won't get it. Like If it's something important, it takes reading takes a long time. Unless, of course, you do have a problem, in which case, obviously, go and see a professional about it. But I think it's really important to check out these effectively lies that we tell ourselves. And we can we can spend our whole life in this like random parallel universe where everyone's better than us and everyone is disappointed in us. And actually, just go and check, like just go and ask people. And I think what I really loved about our smart self-care program, which which you were in, is I loved hearing the exchange of that's funny I thought I thought you know I'm the only person who can only work between like you know I don't know one and four like I thought everyone got up at eight and worked at nine and it's like you just realize you are not alone and of course you're not alone anyway because the likelihood of you being the only person on the planet who works in the way you do just statistically is nil right so you're gonna have loads of people like you and I think what's nice is you by being more open about these things you're more likely to find these people who are like you and therefore support each other but because people don't talk about this stuff and people make assumptions about what other people are doing there's just this lack of transparency we go deeper and deeper into this hole so I'm about outing the trials and tribulations of doctoral study 
normalizing it. It's okay to like have duvet days, right? It's one of my phrases. This is when you can't face doing any work and you just need to go under a duvet all day. We all have them. You'd be lying to tell me you've never done that. And yet, how often do we mention it and give it a name? And, and just one more tip for people listening. Give these things names. Call it a duvet day. Call it whatever it is. Well, as soon as you give it a name, you make a little joke out of it, and you can call up your friend and you can say, I'm having a duvet day. And by naming it, you're objectifying it, you're calling it out, and you're, you're able to sort of examine it more clearly as well. You can even start charting it, you know. How often are these duvet days? Or is it always two weeks before a deadline? You know, it may well be. In which case, you can preempt the duvet day. And you can say, I know, I'm going to have a relaxing day today and not put any pressure on myself to do it because it would otherwise turn into a duvet day, for example. I often think with academia, the end product is, is the thing that's kind of held up there. Hi, you know, the peer-reviewed article or, you know, the book. But one of the things that we're not often exposed to is all the kind of steps that someone's taken, all the processes that people take to get to that point. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, an artist, for example, you see this masterpiece, but they would have gone through trial and error and processes to get to that point. And I think maybe this idea of being more open from a perspective of, you know, academia could be more open about the types of processes that people go through to get to that end product. Yeah, I mean... This is my personal crusade. I mean, I've seen, not, not sure where, probably in a museum in Italy, gallery in Italy, I've seen um, da Vinci's, you know, drawings of various things before he ended up turning them into, into sculptures or, or paintings. And I find that fascinating to see, as you said, the bit beneath the surface. How did it get there? How, how did that work? You know, where did it come from and how long did it take? And I think it's dangerous because when we re read peer-reviewed articles, because obviously we only ever see, you know, books are finished products and papers. So we really never, ever see anything that isn't finished. I mean, unless you happen to swap a draft with a friend, which, by the way, I, I encourage all of you to do, do swap drafts, do give feedback to each other before you send it to a supervisor just for another pair of eyes. You don't know what pe again you don't know what people's processes are or how many drafts it takes or, or what have you I'm very open about this I, I gave a talk recently with my friend and colleague Rowena Murray and we showed the people in the lecture our notebooks and in my case my huge bits of paper that have like random scribbles on because I like writing in felt pet like big fat felt pens and have these huge bits of paper and there's, you know, there is a process I go through before I commit anything to paper. And I, I cut loads of stuff out, you know, like I, I print stuff out that I've written, cut it all up physically and move it around, you know, analog style rather than on a Word document. And, you know, there's something hugely liberating about that. And, and my latest thing is I'm actually using a lot of um, in my new program, Guts and Goals, which, which also... SWW DTP are um, running. I use a lot of clay, plasticine, and and one one of the things we do on that program is we set our weekly goals and our, and our daily goals, which I call nano goals, and we make them out of clay, like a little symbol of it. And there's something about physically touching the goal, like a sort of tangible replica of the goal. It just does. It just accesses a different part of your brain and really cements okay this is what I want to do today and it is different to, to touch something or draw something compared to just writing and I would suggest that if any of your listeners are stuck with writing stop writing start getting felt pens out start drawing start collaging even and um you know and as even you know making models in clay and just see where it goes um you know what one of my other sort of Natalieisms is um, the phrase proto-creation, which is, you know, features on the course. And there's a lot to be said for this experimental sort of gestation time of ideas. As I said, we're in the business of ideas and ideas need time to form and they need bouncing around and discussion and, you know, prototyping, which is what proto-creation, that's what I mean, like proto, like prototypes are like, these these forms of ideas so 
And when is the best time to do that? Well, I'll tell you when the worst time to do that is. Sat at your computer must be the worst time for idea generation of that nature. It's definitely going for a walk, having ideas. It's definitely having a coffee with a friend, having a release. Definitely, you know, get getting the coloured markers out. You know, all the research shows this is when you have your best ideas. So why on earth are we trying to have ideas at a keyboard? The keyboard is the last part of it. That's when you're trying to, like, put it into words. Having said that, just to contradict myself completely, I also think that when we write stuff down, that's when we crystallise our ideas and we can keep developing our ideas. So I'm not saying writing's the end product. It, it, it's definitely iterative. But I think even before you get to the stage of even considering writing, there's this playfulness that has somehow disappeared from, from our lives and we need to bring it back. Yeah, and actually that made me think of, um, I mean, not to give away too much about the smart self-care course because we want people to uh, do it themselves, but, you know, this idea of opening up and narrowing down. And one of the things someone said to me some time ago was, I think it was when I was doing my master's, they said, you know, go to um, a seminar on a subject that maybe isn't your own subject. And actually kind of some of the best ideas happen in the least likely places. And, and I think that's sort of a bit of, of what you're saying. You know, maybe the best ideas don't necessarily come when you've just spent five hours staring at a blank screen, hoping that writing will materialise. Yeah. I've actually, my, my friend and mentor, David Clutterbuck, who's a coach, very famous coach, he said something wonderful, which is go to a bookshop and stand in the middle of the shop and with your eyes closed, turn round, spin round, stop and just point at whatever the like book or bookshelf you're pointing at. Go and look at what that is for some stimulation and some like some ideas. And I think just playful, isn't it? You know, why why not? And I think that we know so much and our challenge is to know what we know. And I think it is a challenge because it's all stored in there, but it's it's hard to come out. And these are all techniques for drawing out this stuff and also not only drawing it out, but but making connections with these different pieces in order to make like a, a new original point. So just to sort of um, maybe round up our session today, I mean, in this podcast, just I mean, I'm going to ask maybe at the end for one takeaway tip that you kind of maybe wish you'd had in your PhD. But before that, I mean, if someone wanted to get into, you know, explore the idea of, say, a PhD student wanted to engage with some of your coaching, how, how might they go about doing that? Well, check out my website, which is www.unicoach.org. And also do work with a lot of universities. So if you're part of SWW or 3D3 or, or some other consortiums, chances are I'm probably doing something at your university but do get in touch and and the other thing is there's many ways you can in, engage with um, stuff I do I do run free writing sessions on a Tuesday that's that's something I call brain fuel boost and there's other programs I run study hubs which are online writing retreats which are monthly and um, we, we know of course about the smart self-care program the guts and goals program so there's there's, there's plenty of ways of engaging. So, yeah, I'd, I really encourage you to to get in touch. And I'm also just really open just to having conversations with people just to just to put them in the right direction, because it might be they just need something very, very small just to just to get them moving again. Yeah. And um, I mean, I hope I'm allowed to say this, but you can tell me if I'm not. But that you're also working on a, a book project for to hopefully turn the smart self-care approach into a book I mean are you allowed to say that at this point I am allowed to say I'm, I don't want to say too much about it just because it's sort of now it's happening mm. now but all all these ideas will be available in book form in about a year from now um, I, I think I don't want the pressure of saying when I think I think that's maybe the bit I'm sort yeah. of <laughs> wriggling away from obviously says, says the person who's meant to help people with their writing so yeah so I'm, I'm really excited that there's been quite a lot of traction for, for these ideas I mean I'm, I'm thrilled that existential psychology is something that's really resonant in the PhD community in, in terms of like practical writing and and being so yeah watch this space okay great that's a good yeah so to think it yeah that's potentially yeah the where the future is going for the smart self-care um yeah uh, approach 
So, well, thank you very much for your time today, Natalie. And I mean, I, I think if we, um, you've given actually some great tips throughout the podcast uh, for, for potential listeners um, who are maybe struggling with, with a lot of the things that are common to, to many PhD researchers. But I guess, I mean, thinking back to that time when you were doing your PhD, I mean, is there one, you know, one takeaway tip that you wish, you know, at the beginning of your PhD journey, you might have known or something that you think a lot of PhD students have benefited from that they could take away? Yeah, I think I think it's easy to get overwhelmed with it, with the sheer enormity of the project. And the best thing I can tell you is just don't think about the sheer enormity of the project. Think of very small parts of it. So you know, I, I would only, I would, um, instead of thinking like, I'm going to write my literature review, which is obviously an enormous piece of work, just think about, I'm going to write paragraph about, you know, X and Y. And just back to what I was saying at the beginning about taking each day at a time, you know, if you've written three paragraphs of your literature review one day, you're doing really well. You know, you've made something out of nothing, you know, well done. And that's much easier to say every day it's an achievement to do three paragraphs. If I do four, amazing. If I do two, don't worry about it. If I do one, okay, next day will be better. We have to keep going in that way rather than saying in a month I'm going to write a literature review because it just feels just undoable. And then we start shrinking in ourselves and just, you know, all that sort of hope and motivation quickly vanishes. So the more you can break down your work, into very actionable, minute pieces. It's just better for you to get on with it and it's more likely you'll actually do it. Brilliant, well, that's a great, great note to end on. Um, so, and for those of you out there, do take a look at Natalie's website if you'd like to find more. Those of you that are consortium funded through the SWWZTP, there's opportunities to engage with Natalie's courses. And I know that some of those courses do become available for the wider Bristol PhD community sometimes. So it's worth worth investigating that way. So um, yeah, uh, so thank you very much, Natalie. Thank you. We'd like to thank you once again for joining us on this latest episode of the PGR Cast. This episode was brought to you by the wider PGR Cast team and produced by Sebastian Bustamante Browning and edited and mixed by Phil Smith. We'd like to thank Dr. Natalie Lancer once again for sharing her valuable insights on her approach to coaching PhD students. If you'd like to listen to other episodes of the PGR cast, please go to soundcloud.com slash Bristol Doctoral College, where you'll find all previous episodes. Thank you once again, and we hope that you can listen in again soon.